Testament scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 49. In this psalm, the psalmist is going to speak about those who cannot uh, redeem uh, from Sheol and of him who can. Beginning in verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called the lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And how God ransoms souls from the power of Sheol from death shall be their shepherd is by the good shepherd and so it is now of him whom we read in John 10. Jesus said I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches and and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. These are the very authoritative words of our Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. For our epistle lesson, we return in our study of 1 Peter to the third chapter. Uh, We come this morning to 
some very, very perplexing verses. There are different kinds of difficult verses in the Bible. Most of the ones that I find so difficult are not difficult because I don't understand them, but because I understand them all too well and uh, <clears throat> I'm not uh, too happy with what the Lord is telling me. Uh, but then there are verses that are terribly difficult to understand. And we come to what many consider uh, the most difficult passage, not only in uh, this little epistle, but in all of the New Testament. In fact, Martin Luther, who was never shy about his interpretations, uh, I don't, can't recall a single time that he said, but I could be wrong. Uh, nonetheless, when Luther commented on these verses that we're about to read, said, this is a wonderful passage, but extremely obscure, and I'm not sure at all what it means. So you may well ask, well, why then are we going to study it? Well, because we believe that the Bible is God's word and that it's given to us so that we might hear him speak and learn. And what I hope to do is not uh, spend time uh, threading through various interpretations, so I'll mention a couple of prominent views. Uh, nonetheless, what I want us to see is that here, in perhaps one of the most confusing passages in all of scripture, nonetheless, there are clear lessons for us. So that's my aim in this. And as I read it, remember that this is flowing right out of what Peter has just been saying. He's writing to people suffering persecution. He's warning them that more persecution is coming. When we get to chapter four, he will say, don't be surprised at the fiery trial yet to come. More is coming. And so he ended the last section that we looked at with these words, verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So he's speaking of suffering. And so we begin with verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are uh, a number of questions that any thoughtful reader has to immediately ask as we read this. Uh, we, we immediately wonder, who are these spirits in prison? To whom is he referring? And uh, at what time did the spirit of Christ 
proclaim something to the spirits in prison and what did the spirit of Christ proclaim? And uh, there are a number of different interpretations that have been held by various parts of the church, always admittedly, tentatively, because everyone who comments on this acknowledges what a difficult text it is. Uh, one view is that spirits in prison uh, refers to angels, fallen angels, who had been cast into Sheol. And the reason for making this argument actually comes from 2 Peter, if you just, if you have a Bible and you turn over, or later if you want to think more about what could it mean, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, where Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world, in other words, and he goes on to say, then he's able to save his people and to punish the wicked, which is virtually the same language that he's using here. So clearly there, the spirits in prison were fallen angels. However, the early church, for the most part, believed that this was referring to the period between Christ's death and his resurrection, and they believed that during that period, Peter was teaching that he'd gone and preached to those who were being held captive in Sheol at death, who had not yet heard the good news of what he had done. And this takes about four or five different versions, and we need not talk anymore about it. Uh, there are other interpretations that say it's actually referring to the spirit of Christ in the apostles after Pentecost declaring the good news. So all sorts of different things. And honestly, I, by the way, sometimes I'm asked, why do we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell? Well, it comes from about the third century, and during the third century, the predominant view was that Peter was saying here that he had descended into hell to preach to the captives, and that it links to what Paul said when it when he said he leads captivity captive. Enough about the theory. I don't know which one it is. Um, and I'm too old to waste my time worrying about which one it is. <laughs> because I'm not gonna arrive at a conclusion since no one has up till now. Um, my arrogance knows bounds. And uh, <laughs> that's one of them. So what, what are we to make of this? Well, I would suggest that nonetheless these are rich verses, as Luther said, this is a wonderful passage, because there's actually so much here, whichever view you might hold about the particular problem parts. And it gives us, and this is what I hope you'll note, it gives us the sweep of redemption. Glory, we say, glory, glory. He starts with the suffering of Christ. Just <clears throat> as Christ suffered, you're going to suffer. And as we'll see in a moment, those sufferings were not an awful accident. It's remarkable to me that I hear Christian people say, isn't it just terrible that Jesus came into the world 
and was rejected by his own people and crucified. Isn't that awful? That's why he came. Without that, there's no salvation. So his suffering, as we'll see in a moment, begins this movement from his suffering to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension. It begins with what the Western church has always emphasized, Christ, the suffering victim, and it moves in the end triumphantly to what the Eastern church has always emphasized, which is Christ, the glorious victor. And we have to keep both of those together because our salvation is found in all of this. Okay, four things that I would underscore in these verses, and we'll just kind of march right through them. The first is that it is through his suffering that Christ reconciled us to God. Look again at that first verse, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Now, you may say, okay, obviously, you know, that's why we're here, that's why we're singing. And yet, I can't tell you how often in talking with Christian people, I see over and again, and I confess at times, I see in my own heart, this feeling of not being reconciled to God. I messed up, I said something, I did something, I shouldn't have done, I left something that I knew God wanted me to do, I didn't do it. And now, suddenly, I feel alienated from God again, far away from Him. As if anything that I could ever do or not do would be the basis of my reconciliation with God. It does matter how we live. We are called to follow Jesus. In that is the joy of our life and our salvation. But it's not the following him that saves us. It's what he has done for us through his suffering in our place. He's the one who, as the beautiful prophetic passage in Isaiah says, was wounded for our transgressions, was bruised for our iniquities. On him was put the chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He suffered to bring us to God. And so if you are God's child, you can never again come under God's wrath and curse. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now, now, not in the future, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that we can't come under his fatherly displeasure. When my kids were small, if, if a neighbor's kid had come over and tried to burn the house down and I wasn't able to get anywhere with the parents, 
I might have called the police. You call in, the law is needed. This, my family could die. But if one of my kids tried to burn down the house, I wasn't calling the police. <laughs> Going to be the posterior application of a superior force. But it's because fatherly displeasure is out of love. It's to correct. It's not to condemn. It's not to convict. It's not to destroy. It is to heal. It is to bring to repentance. It is to build up. If you are God's child, you will not be alienated from him. But if you live carelessly, because he loves you, as the author of Hebrews says plainly in chapter uh, 10, he says, if, he, if you're sinning and there's no, no punishment, he says, it's just proof that you're not God's child. If you go on and on and on in a pattern and God doesn't do something to draw you back. So, first of all, he suffered in order that we might be reconciled to God. And then secondly, he died in order to set us free from bondage. Now, I'm not sure exactly who, whom he is referring to here when he talks about spirits in prison, but I know that that's how I was born. I was a little imprisoned spirit, imprisoned in my own flesh, seeking to be my own Lord and Master, crying out for the satisfaction of every desire, every lust, every longing. And I was enslaved by it. And when after knowing the gospel, growing up in a gospel family, and running far from the Lord because I wanted to be free, and I remember my wise, godly mother looking at me and saying, when I said to her, I just want to be free, she said, free to do what, John? <laughs> I found it was the deepest and foulest bondage of all. In fact, I began to learn the lesson when I was kicked out of Wheaton and a friend of mine and I on icy winter day decided to hitchhike to Greenwich Village, New York and set up as poets and writers. And, and we were on one of the expressways from Chicago to New York as night closed in. We were free. We had our thumbs out. All these poor people in bondage to jobs and families were driving past us in their warm cars. <laughs> and suddenly we looked at each other and said, is this the freedom we desired? I'm freezing out here. But bondage. And what Christ did was through his death, the proclamation that it is finished, that all of your indebtedness, all of your brokenness, all of your rebellion. I, Jesus said from the cross, have taken into myself and put it to death. And then kicked down death's doors from the inside. Ben Hayden, the late Ben Hayden, was for many, many years the pastor of First Presbyterian Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he had an international ministry through radio and television, and it was called Changed Lives. And Ben would often say, it's an inside job. What did he mean? He meant that God, in his infinite mercy and grace, joined himself to us 
entered our mess, even entered into death itself and destroyed its power over us from the inside out. And that's what he's saying here, that he spoke, whether it was his spirit preaching through Noah in the days when Noah preached to the, to the people who didn't come into the ark, or whether it was between his death and resurrection, this gospel continues to go forth to people who are bound by sin and death and to set us free from our bondage. Thirdly, in his resurrection, he accomplishes two things that are spoken of here. And this shades two verses. Look at, uh, look at verse 20. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water baptism. Wow, where did that come from? Water, water, the flood, baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? To the flood. Now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it is through the resurrection that God first lifts us up above the waters of chaos and saves us from destruction that we deserve due to our sin. And an inside job with us. He cleanses our conscience. Okay, how does this work? Well, first, just a little clarity. Why does he tie together baptism and the flood? If you remember the creation account in Genesis 1, on the second day, God separates the waters above from the waters below. And God creates this space that he maintains by his providential power. In other words, he is shaping a cosmos in which we may live and over which we may, in the right sense, have dominion for his sake in order to offer it back to him as his priest king. And both the Jewish people and the early church, Israel and the church, understood the flood as God's, in a sense, revocation of his holding the waters apart. We read that he looked at the earth and saw everyone but this righteous man, Noah, in rebellion against him. And we even read there that God said, I repent that I even created man. I'm sorry I even you know, made this mess. Now, a lot of anthropomorphic stuff there, but I think we need to take it seriously too. God's not the unmoved mover of Aristotle. We are like him in many ways, I think, including our passions when they're right and holy, our longings for what is good and right, and our revulsion at what is horrid and cruel. And God looked and saw the abomination that the earth had become. And it's like he just said, I'm going to revoke the creation. The waters of chaos will come down and rise up, and I'm going to wash this earth clean and start again. That's the picture that we have in the flood, and that's how it was understood. Baptism 
was understood as picturing, in a sense, those waters of chaos that now become salvation to those who are in the ark, who are in Christ. One of the earliest symbols of the church found in the catacombs is pictures of the ark. The church saw themselves as having been rescued. Christ was the ark. His church was the ark. We've been put in there. And what happens? The waters of God's judgment when they come to destroy those who have refused his grace will be unable to harm us. In fact, they'll lift us up. And that's depicted in baptism whenever we have a water sacrament within the church. So he's picturing our escape by God's grace through the gospel from the destruction. But then he turns it and says, and it gives us a clear conscience. Why would I get a clear conscience from that? Because God has washed it clean. I'm in Christ. All that is his is now mine. His righteousness is mine. His life is mine. He's taken my sin and put it to death. He's given me his life. And so I have a clear conscience. So may I just ask you a pastoral question? Do you have a clear conscience? Is your conscience clear before the Lord? You may be remembering things you've said, things you've done, as we all do. But the Lord wants us to stop walking around with our heads down like a defeated bunch of ninnies always, you know, someday he'll get me out of here and I'll get to go to heaven when I die. No, you're a child of the king. He's called you what you are. He has said you are mine. You are holy people. You are my inheritance. And he wants us to stand up and when we sin, to see it immediately and say, Father, forgive me, and to believe that he forgives us. That's not cheap grace. It was costly grace. It cost Christ the cross. But he wants us to walk with that kind of clarity. And how differently, I think, we would treat other people. How much more quick we would be to forgive other people their sins if we realized how totally and utterly God has made us his and cleansed us and given us a clear conscience. That's through his resurrection, the victory. And then finally, he's ascended. He's now seated. He suffered. He died. But he rose and he ascended and he now rules and reigns over everything that would separate us from God. See how he ends it? as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Spiritually speaking, theologically speaking, where are you right now? Where am I? Well, in one sense, we're right here in EP in Annapolis. 
I moved here to be with you. Somebody asked, somebody from the church who didn't know that Connie and I were married, asked her, what brought you to Annapolis? She said, I married a guy who lives here. <laughs> so in one sense, this is where we are. But theologically, even now, the Bible tells us that you and I are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's not just prospectively. Now, how can we say that? Because you and I are in union with Christ. And so who he is, is in the deepest sense, my identity. As the Father has loved him, so he loves you and me if we are in him. And so, what have we to fear? What have we to dread? These people were getting ready to be, some of them, martyred, probably horribly, by Nero, in his gardens, lit as torches. And yet he's telling them all the way through here, don't be afraid, because suffering is the way that God leads us to glory. It's what gets the glory in. Remember the, the missionary trying to free the poor thing, trying to get out of the chrysalis. He thought he was freeing it. And when he cut it open, it emerged poor, misshapen. Why? Because it was the struggle in the chrysalis that gives it the glory, that gets it transform you are being made in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ and everything happening to you and me today is bringing us more deeply into that do you believe that do I I preach that to you and yet I go out and I can so quickly begin to feel alienated from the Lord forget who I am begin to suffer a guilty conscience, and I want to believe the things that the Bible says that I preach to you. Let's help each other believe these things. Let's counsel each other wisely and biblically. Let's care for one another, not beat each other down, but love one another from the heart as those who through his suffering have been reconciled, those who through his death have been set free from bondage, who through his resurrection have been delivered from that flood of punishment that we deserved and instead are buoyed up by everything that would otherwise destroy us because we are in the ark of Christ and therefore have a clear conscience because I'm in Christ. And finally, it's all secured for us because the one who loves us and gave himself for us rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. And so, with the Apostle Paul, we should learn to say, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you stand?
Father, thank you that it was through suffering that Christ redeemed us, through taking our suffering, the death that we deserved, and offering in the place of our brokenness his perfectly obedient, lovingly responsive life, offering that to you in our place so that we in him might now be your righteousness. May that give us not arrogance, but the deepest humility and a deep affection for those who don't yet know such grace. Would you take just a moment and respond to whatever God's Spirit would say to you through his word?